listeners, I'm Stacey Lee Sherwood from Reality Checks with Stacey Lee, coming to you on All About Animals Radio. Now, if you think animal issues are just about animals, well, no, they also involve politics and economics, so they really do affect all of us. So I hope today you learn a little something, maybe be motivated to act, and enjoy the show. So with that, my guest today is Sarah Killingsworth, Program Coordinator for Keeping It Wild, Youth Education and Outreach Program Coordinator at Project Coyote. She's also a wildlife conservation photographer and filmmaker. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Oh, well, I look forward, I look forward to hearing what you have to say about uh, Project Coyote and everything that goes on with the coyotes. So let's just start with um, how you got involved with Project Coyote. So Project Coyote was founded 15 years ago. We just had our 15th anniversary by Camilla Fox here in California and is dedicated to compassionate coexistence and science-based advocacy on behalf of all native predators, uh, coyotes being certainly the most disparaged of them. Uh, my involvement started um, as part of my wildlife photography and filmmaking and a passion for native predators, particularly bobcats, foxes, and coyotes, and wanting to use imagery and speaking opportunities to um, enhance their survival and people's understanding and coexistence. What do you think, um, or why, why do you think coyotes in particular have been so vilified over the years? What what is it about coyotes? I spoiler alert, I personally love them, so I don't understand why they've been vilified. But what 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 do you think is the problem with all of that? Well, it is ironic because Americans love their dogs, and dogs and coyotes are really very, very similar. Right. Um, but you know, in some ways, it really goes back to what has been a war on native predators for hundreds of years in this country. Um, the Native Americans have um, had a tremendous respect for coyote and other predators, and they had a role in folklore and um, their stories. But the European settlers, when they came, they viewed the predators as competition um, for the game animals that they might want to kill themselves, like deer and pronghorn and elk. They viewed them as a threat to their livestock and potentially a threat to themselves and their families. And so uh, starting hundreds of years ago, um, a campaign against all of our native predators was created. There were bounties in many states um, that had a price per head for, you know, bobcats, coyotes, wolves, etc. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, bobcats and um, coyotes have done all right in the states, but wolves and grizzly bears and mountain lions were extirpated from much of their original range in this continent. And so I actually think that one of the reasons coyotes are so vilified is because they defied all the attempts to exterminate them. Um, coyotes are killed in unbelievable numbers. 500,000 coyotes a year are killed in this country. And their range now is far larger than their range was when the settlers arrived. Hmm. So not only have they not been reduced, but their population has actually grown and spread. And I think in part, our inability to control them has led to the level of resentment and aggression towards them because they are incredibly smart, curious, adaptive animals. And when we extirpated the wolf from much of this country, it created a void in those ecosystems and the coyotes were all too able to go in and fill that role. 
And so uh, we created their success in a way, and there's a lot of other biological reasons that trying to kill coyotes can actually contribute to an increase in population. Um, but I, I do think that some of it is our inability to control them has led to an increased le level of conflict with them from our standpoint. Well, it's certainly ironic to say the least that after all of this, their population has increased and their range has increased. So once again, that has, as you said, proven the point that killing, you know, just like with the killing of the feral cats, it does not have the intended effect, uh, aside from the fact that it's quite disgusting and cruel, that's just my opinion. Um, it clearly, it doesn't, it doesn't reduce the population. It doesn't, it has nothing to do with conservation. It doesn't, it doesn't make them healthy. So you had touched on these killing contests, which um, I didn't want to use the word contest because that sounds like there's some sort of, I don't know, sportsmanship or gamesmanship um, involved, which I, I don't think that there is. So for people who don't know what these killing contests are, could you elaborate on what that is, what kind of person might be drawn to such a contest, and some of the excuses or reasons that the promoters give for having these killing contests in the first place. Sure. So wildlife killing contests are quite simply a blood sport. Um, they are killing for killing's sake. And um, I will state that I have not personally ever attended one. Um, I don't think I have the stomach for that violence. No, but... Me either. <laughs> Um, but they are basically, um, and they vary from state to state, uh, but they are contests in which people win money or prizes for killing the most of a particular animal or the biggest, largest, heaviest weight of a particular animal. And um, the volumes of carcasses are simply piled up and discarded after the animals are killed. So it is, it is killing for entertainment. Um, there is no scientific basis of any benefit that these contests serve. They are actually um, really, um, there are a number of hunters who actually dislike these contests and, and view them as an improper um, action mm -hmm. to take in the wild, um, not just conservation groups. And in terms of the purported function or role or benefit, um, I've heard you know, some of them say that it will um, help control the animal populations, which will thus increase the game species. Um, so again, we're back to things like deer or elk. Um, but scientifically, that's that's not the case. Um, killing a large number of coyotes, for example, in a given area will not increase the deer population. Um, in general, when it comes to ecosystems, the size of a population is controlled by the availability of its food source. So eliminating the predator um, isn't going to help, one. But two, I mentioned earlier, coyotes have some particular social structures and adaptations that actually make indiscriminate killing of animals particularly ineffective as it relates to coyotes. So coyotes live in packs, small packs, um, with offspring from usually a couple of years combined with an alpha pair. And that pair is the only breeding pair in that pack. If in fact members of the pack, and particularly if a member of that pair is killed, then the pack may very well fragment and split into two breeding pairs. So now you have more coyotes breeding in the area. 
But the other thing that happens is coyotes have an adaptation where when their population is under stress, they actually have larger litters of pups. Hmm. And so instead of, you know, five or seven, they might have 10. Um, wow. and so you end up creating a situation where more coyotes are born, you've disrupted their pack social structure, and you haven't improved the presence of the game animals um, at all. Exactly. So, so basically, once again, we are doing everything kind of backwards. Um, we should really just kind of leave the coyotes alone and nature would just take care of a sustainable ecosystem. Um, do you know roughly when these contests kind of came into came into being? I, I remember hearing about them. I think I first I think I first heard about them starting with like squirrels or something, squirrels or raccoons, like in upstate New York about 15 years ago. And then from then it went on to coyotes and wolves and other animals. Do you know how long the killing contest focusing on coyotes has been going on? Um so I I don't know the exact year that they uh, they started. Um, what I would say is that they're they're almost a continuation of the bounty on the predators' heads, though, which is oh, okay. hundreds of years old. Right. Um, but yeah, you're right. These contests we've been talking about coyotes, but for example, there's a big bobcat killing contest in Texas every year that specifically targets bobcats, um, ground squirrels, other other animals that are viewed as pests, quote unquote, um, in a system are also some states foxes, um, gray foxes or red foxes are also killed in these killing contests. And so um, coyotes, some of them are coyote specific. Sometimes coyote is just one of many species that are targeted by the killing contest. Um, Project Coyote, I should mention, is part of a nationwide coalition to end wildlife killing contests in all states. And on fed there's currently work to have it end on federal lands. Um, Project Coyote and the uh, Humane Society of the United States and other partner organizations who are working very hard on this issue have successfully eliminated these contests in eight states. So they are still legal in 42. Um, and like I said, there's currently work underway um, to try and ban them on all federal lands. So that's one of the ways people can get involved um, and join our, we have an email pack uh, for Project Coyote. People can go to our website and see petitions and other action items they can take um, if they want to take action against these cruel and barbaric contests. Now, what did it take to ban it in the, you said eight states have already banned the killing contests? Yes. Okay, what what did it take? Because clearly we want the other forty two to to follow suit. What <laughs> what did it, and and I've been in legal battles, and I mean it just goes on and on and on. So um, assuming that there's a miracle, what would it take to ban it in the other forty two, or at least the major ones? I'm assuming the western states are probably the major ones for the killing contests, or would I be wrong in that? Um, you know, uh, it's a mix. Um, they're big in Illinois, for example. Um, the the well. coyote killing contest or big, big uh, I, I would not think Illinois was a huge coyote state. I would think more like Montana. Okay. So yeah. So, so it's, Illinois. It's, it's, right. Yeah. It's lots of different states. Um, so let's see in terms of what actions it takes, it, it depends on the state. There's a variety. So um, Project Coyote works very closely with local partners in any given place. So um, typically, um, change is effective 
in um, either legislative action or working with the state's Department of Fish and Game on regulations, depending on what's in place. Um, in some cases, to protect some species, lawsuits are filed, although that's been more true of, for example, the wolf campaign that Project right. Coyote has been involved in. Um, so um, it, it usually takes legislative action, finding a sponsor in a state that's sympathetic and um, creating a bill that bans them. Now, let me ask, uh, you said that it was, uh, the killing contest were legal in 42 other states. Does that mean that the contests actually go on in all 42 states? Is there any state where they don't have these killing contests of coyotes? So I don't know the answer to that specifically. And I also don't know that some of those states may have wildlife killing contests that don't specifically target coyotes. So okay. like I said, some states have them for like ground squirrels and, and raccoons and foxes and bobcats and other things. Right. Um, and I don't have the knowledge to tell you exactly in each individual state what species are targeted uh, by these contests. But the goal would be to, the goal would be to make killing for entertainment's sake of wildlife illegal in every state, regardless of the species. Right. And as you, and as you had mentioned, um, when they kill all these animals, um, and a lot of them are fur-bearing animals, um, the animals are basically just disposed of. So again, there isn't even a shred of the facade that there's going to be you know, use of the fur or use of the meat, sometimes they use that too. So there's there's none of that even going on. It's literally just killing for the sake of killing. And then what exactly happens to the all the dead carcasses? Um, do they just end up in a big pile somewhere or? Yeah, they're usually yeah. literally just dumped in a pile. Oh my God. So that's so that's where we're, you wonder why there's so much violence in, in the world. Um, I've seen many photos over the years of these houses covered with, you know, obviously coyotes that have been have been killed. Uh, sometimes wolves and foxes are included, um, and like literally the house is just completely covered in all of that. Um, is there any? Do you have any opinion um, as to why somebody would? would do that because uh, I know I've shown pictures of that to people and they just they couldn't believe that that actually existed you know that somebody would cover a house with all kinds of dead animals um, but also that's part of that whole culture right the the killing contest culture and all of that so um, one of the things again sort of in the westward expansion and and um, the war on native predators generally is that um, it became a practice certainly in in rural areas that when um, coyotes and sometimes other animals were killed they would hang them on fence posts and so you could drive down a road and see carcasses hung on a fence post and um, ostensibly that was to deter other coyotes from coming onto the property. There's no scientific basis that says that that works, by the way, but that's one of the claims. And then sometimes people say that that's also to warn people, quote unquote, that there are predators in the area. By seeing a carcass, you know that they're around. Um, we have coyotes across this entire country. So at this point, I feel like people should know that they're in the area, no matter where they are. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. But um, so... You know, I, I don't, I don't have any other explanation for hanging animals on your house or on your fence post, other than that has been sort of that longstanding 
warning, if you will, of some Gosh. sort, um, yeah. which, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty disturbing as a concept. Interesting. I wonder if that goes back to Vlad the Impala because uh, the Impala, because he had a, uh, he was a, was it Roman? He was a Romanian prince from, I don't know, several hundred years ago. And uh, he had, he had this policy where he would kill his enemies, but also sometimes his own people. And he would like impale them. Mm. Um, right. Kind of like as a warning to people, I guess, um, that he was dangerous or not to come near him or some such thing. And maybe it kind of goes back to that, which of course you don't want to follow in that, that guy's footsteps. Um, let's know. Yeah, I mean, certainly intimidation of some <laughs> sort is implied when you have dead, anything hanging on your walls or your fence posts. I would think so. I would, I would, I would think so. It's just, it's just so gruesome. You know, you kind of have to think you're coming home from work and you're driving home and there's your, you know, there's your castle, so to speak, covered with dead animals. Um, but let's let's go on a little lighter side and let's talk about like the family structure and the social structure of coyotes because people probably um, they probably think that they're kind of like a wolf and they are similar. Um, but I don't think there isn't as much information out there about coyotes. We hear about wolves all the time, the family structure and the wolf pups and the killing and all of that. But I don't think a whole lot of information is out there about the family structure and how amazing parents uh, coyotes can be as well. So I would like to educate people on all the benefits of coyotes, of which there are many. <laughs> sure, yeah. So um, first, of course, coyotes provide excellent rodent control um, in any environment. So um, they're a bonus um, to get rid of gophers and voles and moles and mice and rats and all sorts of things. Um, in terms of parenting, so uh, in many wildlife species, the moms do all the work raising the young. Um, that is not true of um, the canines. The coyotes and the foxes are very dedicated fathers. And so the mother and father coyote will raise their pups together. Um, mm -hmm. In my experience here in California, I tend to see litters of five to seven coyote pups. Mm -hmm. um, Coyote dens are often a hole in the ground, um, which either they've dug themselves or sometimes they adapt a badger's den um, and oh. dig it out further. Um, and then, um, you know, the pups, when they're born, have blue eyes and um, are nursing, but the parents will start bringing food back to them. The parents maintain very close vigilance to their pups. Um, there's usually at least one of them sitting very nearby, even if they're not sitting right with them. It's common in a pack structure for coyotes to have the prior year's pups still around also. So oh, you could have the parents and then some pups from the prior year, which are yearlings basically, um, a couple of those might still be around. And then the this year's newer pups together. Um, unlike wolves, coyotes don't hunt in a pack. So wolves have a very specific strategy for hunting that involves many, many of the animals working together cooperatively, basically, to hunt. Typically, coyotes hunt alone. Um, that's in part, I think, a function of their prey. Um, they're not trying to take down generally elk or bison or something large like wolves are. So gophers and um, other rodents, things like that, they're going to be hunting individually. I have seen coyotes hunt. Occasionally, they'll hunt in a pair. 
Um, mm. So two will hunt together. I've seen them hunting quail together um, and other smaller animals, but that maybe there's a group of them. And so they might come at them from two different angles together hunting. But um, but that's really as, as many as I've ever seen hunting together. They do come together. Um, so one of my favorite things to hear in the evening or early in the morning is a coyote howl. Mm. And, um, you know, they are our song dog and they have a, it's a social howl. So there's all these myths out there that coyotes, you know, howl when they have a kill or, you know, it's that it's some sort of aggressive thing. And, and it's not, it's, it's something along the lines of, Hey, I'm over here. Where are you? Um, oh, and waiting okay. for a call back. Um, <laughs> that's how they locate each other when they've been separated. Right. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's to help them come together. Um, sometimes packs will communicate with each other. So as the pups get older, they will eventually get pushed off by their parents and have to establish their own independent space. And, but they're still related. And so those related packs do sometimes either come together or interact or howl back and forth across a valley kind of thing. And they're still in contact with each other. Interesting. Do the yearlings um, participate in raising their younger siblings or not? Um, I don't, I have never seen it particularly actively. I mean, I, I think wolves have much more of that kind of babysitter role for some of the members of their pack. Um, but I, I think, you know, coyotes are attached in a sense. And so, you know, if there were a threat, I think they would protect, act to protect the pups. But um, especially when the pups are quite young, it, usually there's still one parent with them. They they don't get left alone by the two parents usually. Now you said they live in packs, but they hunt alone. So that's quite different. So, so within the pack, is there a similar hierarchy like there is with wolves or is it more of a, we live in a community, but we, we kind of go our own way type type thing. When, when it comes to coyotes, the what we think of as quote, the alpha pair is, is right. really just, I think, what you could think of as the parents. It's the breeding pair, right? Okay. It's the two that will have babies. They're not, right. they're not sort of controlling a larger social structure. It's not like a wolf pack in that way. Okay, so there isn't like the, the Omega wolf that um, kind of gets everyone to play and kind of calm them down. And then you have the alpha pair and then you have the betas and they're kind of in the middle. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of like a different, a different structure. How, how big would you say the coyote packs typically are? Uh, the biggest I typically see is five at most seven. Um, and sometimes oh, it's smaller seven. because not, even though they have a lot of pups, they don't all survive, right? Right, right. Um, yeah, their their packs are much smaller than wolf packs, much smaller. Oh, okay, yeah, because I went out to Yellowstone in 1999, and at the time, the Druid pack was small. I think there were seven or eight adults, but the Rose Creek pack has something like 20 adults. Um, and then I think at some point they branched off, and there was like the Rose Creek pack and the second Rose Creek pack. So the two combined was like almost 30, which was quite large. So the so the coyotes have a much smaller, uh, smaller kind of group. How do coyotes interact with wolves if they were to share a 
territory. A lot of people seem to wonder wonder about that, you know, because they see a picture of a coyote or they see a picture of a wolf and a lot of people can't distinguish between the two physically. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they probably wonder, well, if you had like a wolf pack and, you know, a coyote pack, would they interact and how would they interact? So they do interact um, and there are ecosystems, including Yellowstone, which have both. Um, And, you know, it depends a lot on the situation and on the individuals and how many of each species are present. Mm. So um, typically, as I mentioned earlier, it was the eradication of wolves in many places that led to the opening for coyotes to spread into those places, because typically wolves are dominant over coyotes. They're much bigger animals. They're much heavier. Um, physiologically, to tell them apart, wolves have shorter ears and much shorter, broader snouts. Coyotes have a longer, narrow snout and taller pointed ears, just from a visual standpoint. Uh, in terms of their interactions, so a wolf a wolf pack would generally be above a coyote pack. And so it, it would not be typical for especially a single or a small number of coyotes to take on a, a full wolf pack. That would be a dangerous thing to do. That said, I, a few years ago, was in Yellowstone and um, the Wapiti Lake pack had a bison kill near the road and they had been feeding on, but after they bed for a while, they would go up into the forest and take naps basically in the trees and step away from the carcass. And at one point, 11 coyotes came down to the largest group of coyotes I've seen together actually came down and started feeding on the carcass. And the wolves didn't at least initially push them off. But that said, that same kill site within another day, a lone coyote tried to come down and some of the wolves were up and around and they chased that coyote across the road, up the hill, like probably a half mile away. So it really depends on, you know, how, how much they need to protect their food source, how many coyotes there are versus how many wolves and the health of, you know, all of those individuals, temperaments, things like that. But generally the wolves will dominate the coyotes. They're much bigger, stronger, and they, they travel tend to travel in much larger groups. Right. How far, um, what would you say the, the average range is of, uh, of the coyotes? You know, it varies significantly based on food. So it's, um, it's, it's many miles, um, could be five square miles could be 30 square miles. Um, it just, it depends on their food source and, um, and how many of them they're trying to feed from that food source. So there's a lot of variation also with any species that's as widespread as the coyote, the territory size in Minnesota versus Texas versus California is probably three very different numbers because you have different weather, different food sources and other competition from other species. Right. Which which state or which region of the country would you say has the best coyote conservation policies? Um, I mean, if if we were to pick a place, kind of as a as a maybe a template to kind of emulate, um, I'm I'm guessing. Well, I'm down here in Florida, and I can tell you we are not wildlife friendly. So I know it would not be, I know it would not be Florida, but is there, is there a state or like a region where you could look at and think, oh, they're pretty good on coyote conservation policies? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think California actually is good on on native predator protections in general. Um, you know, they've banned trapping for trapping here oh, in California. Right. Is, that, is, that, is that for all animals or just specific? that's for all animals? OK, well, yay, California for that. OK. And um, there's a ban, um, not quite an absolute ban, but extreme limitations on the use of uh, second generation anticoagulant rodenticides, which are a huge cause of mortality for many predators, raptors, bobcats, coyotes, eat poisoned prey um, and become sick and can die. Um, is that like the the compound 1080 or is that something else? Well, that's a different horrible thing. Oh, yes. that's a different one. Okay. I want to circle back to that later on too. Okay. Yeah. So, so there's a, you said there was a, a limit on the use of that. So it's, it's not available. So it's, it's very, it's not generally available for the average person to buy and use at their home. So there are limitations okay. for like public health and safety. So, so they still are in use in some places, but okay. it's not widely available um, for personal use. And it would be great to have it banned altogether. Um, the other thing which we we haven't um, we haven't really touched on at all is um, the wildlife services um, and the the killing of native predators that's done to protect um, livestock and ranching operations, which is another yes. um, another justification sometimes given for killing contests. Although again, there's no scientific basis to suggest that those indiscriminate killings of animals in any way impact the um, predation on livestock. And overall native predator predation on livestock is a tiny, tiny percentage. So for coyotes, it's less than 1% of livestock losses in this country. Um, even when you include wolves, it's less than 5%. Uh, disease and weather cause far more um, in terms of uh, livestock losses and deaths than the native predators do. But um, one of the things I wanted to mention in California and specifically here in Marin County is something that Camilla Fox, our founder, was actively involved in, which is the contract with the USDA Wildlife Services, um, because that is um, an organization that kills um, a variety of our native predators at, to ostensibly protect um, livestock. And um, Marin County was actually going to be a test site for a program that included use of 1080 to try and kill coyotes. That didn't happen. Um, but Marin County also was um, a trendsetter in, in, in not having a contract because they no longer wanted to have lethal controls used for the um, issues with predators and livestock. And because wildlife services tended to use that as their preferred method to deal with the issue. Um, they decided they weren't going to renew the contract. And so what grew out of that is a really wonderful program that is non-lethal coexistence for predators and livestock operators. And so that, that model um, here in Marin, the conflict was primarily sheep and coyote. And it was still relatively small in terms of numbers, but that was the problem that was needing to be solved was how to deter predators from livestock and particularly from sheep. And so uh, Camilla did a lot of work on this topic and talking to ranchers and, and to others here in Marin. And 
things like um, guardian livestock guardian dogs and llamas. Llamas surprisingly have an innate hatred of canines and will just go after a coyote. L llamas, I are they are they the species that like spits at you? You get too close. <laughs> I mean, they look they have that sweet face and they look so friendly, but they're the ones that kind of spit. So, so a so, llama would be like a so, guard animal. A llama is a guard animal. Yeah. Who knew? I did right? not know that. Who knew? Okay. So but that's yeah, the so answer, folks. Just get llamas. All right. Yes, okay. You don't need to kill the coyotes. You can no. simply deter them with these um, livestock guardian dogs and llamas. And then there's a variety of other deterrents, right? Obviously fencing. Um, there are things like simply putting your sheep into a shed at night because the predation typically would occur at night. Right. Having bright lights, having things that made noises at random intervals that deterred um, the predators from coming onto the property. There are a whole host of, I mean, that's the advantage of our modern world, right? It's not the 1800s. So we have a lot of tools at our disposal. Right, exactly. Exactly. Deter, that are non-lethal and, and frankly, more effective um, because the the depredation and the killing of coyotes, they don't know usually whether they're killing the right one or not. And in fact, the ones they kill when they've done an analysis, many of those, more than, you know, more than half and sometimes as many as three quarters or more of them had no livestock, no, no evidence that they had ever consumed livestock, right? So you're just exactly. killing the coyotes in the ecosystem who've never preyed on livestock of any kind in an effort that if they kill enough, they'll kill the one that might have killed a sheep at some point. Whereas if you right. can deter them all and coexist, you have a healthier ecosystem with the coyotes with an intact pack structure. And again, killing certain members of the pack can actually cause more disruption and more conflict than just deterring a stable pack that's already there. Right. Now, when you guys approach uh, a rancher with these alternatives, would you say that they are open to it? Would you say that they are resistant? Uh, is there any kind of pushback? Because it sounds like almost like a no brainer to me. It sounds not only um, less cruel, but more sustainable. It probably is more economically feasible. It uh, sounds like there is every reason to do this and no reason to do the old ways. But would you say that you encounter pushback or is there are they kind of coming around to the thinking that maybe guard dogs and llamas and bright lights would be the way to go? I, I think, you know, one of the things that we do well at Project Coyote is really engage all of the stakeholders in a community and, and, and really listen to the concerns and try and address those concerns. And so finding solutions that actually work and that science-based approach to things has led to a, a really, um, I think, productive dialogue and an open-minded approach here in Marin. Um, I mean, we have Project Coyote, one of our programs is ranching with wildlife. And we have a cattle rancher who's, who's a program coordinator who goes out and talks to other ranchers about what she does on her ranch and different things that are effective for them relating to different predators. And so I think, you know, Obviously, people are are different and vary from place to place and in their experience. But, you know, when it's a successful science-based approach that can stop the livestock losses to the extent they've had them, and most, most programs include some form of compensation, you know, if you take right. these measures, right, if you take the non-lethal steps and you improve your lighting and your fencing and you have a nightshed and you get a guardian dog or a llama, and then you still lose one, 
then there's compensation for that loss. And I think that helps too, because, you know, at the end of the day, the people with the ranches are trying to make a living and support their families. And so there's an economic reality. And, um, you know, I don't think killing any of the predators is the solution to, you know, what is a relatively small percentage of livestock losses for that reason. But it's a problem that deserves attention and an attempt to find a way that's not lethal to address it. Right. I, I agree. Now, um, if you live in a state where there are ranchers and you would be interested in uh, having this this woman rancher come speak to other ranchers, um, would, could someone just go on your website or how, how would they coordinate that? Or does she have defined tours of her own? Because that would seem like something that would be really great to encourage uh, people to <laughs> to participate in. Yeah, so her name is Kelly Hendricks, and she's a total rock star. She's awesome, and she does a lot of Zoom presentations. So um, she she certainly certainly could be available from a digital standpoint. Um, And then she is based here in California. But um, yeah, so anyone who's interested in having someone from our organization speak, um, a number of us do different public speaking um, engagements either in person or online um, can reach out info at projectcoyote.org. Okay, I will include that information um, so people can can get that because that definitely sounds like something that that would be good. Um, what other educational programs uh, are you guys involved in? So we do a variety of outreach and and community presentations. So we have um, we have the program that I coordinate, which is youth education and outreach. So I do a lot of uh, youth presentations. So typically classroom presentations, either in person or over Zoom, um, sometimes youth groups like Boy Scouts or, you know, other um, organizations, um, intern programs for high schoolers, a variety of different schools. And we also on our website have curriculum and resources for teachers if they want to use um, some of our slideshows and and discussion points, games, things like that in their classrooms. We have resources there. Um, There is a program we have called Coyote Friendly Communities, and that also includes tips for coexistence, like little business cards that have tips that you can hand out. We have flyers that you can post in locations where coyotes are denning because sometimes that's an increased area of of conflict with humans and dogs. And so Mm -hmm. helping people get tips about how to safely navigate the area and avoid a conflict there. Um, And then, you know, a variety of just other community speaking engagements. Camilla goes to a variety of conferences, um, you know, across the country. I do other, in addition to the youth speaking events, I do other, I've done other podcasts um, similar to this. I've, I've spoken to other adult organizations like Rotary groups and other community groups about um, coexistence with native predators, not just coyotes, but native predators generally. Um, so yeah, there's, a, there's always a lot of moving parts in addition to all the advocacy work that we do. We do a lot of educational outreach as well because we think it's so important. It, it is important. Um, I did want to circle back to Compound 1080 um, because if you're if you're into you know animal rights or the environment, you've probably read or seen something to that effect. But for those who are not familiar with what that is and what that does and how it was used, would you like to elaborate on 
all of all of that it's 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 a it's a it's a terrible chemical it's a horrible horrible painful death too but people should know um and also wildlife services uses this or or they they used to um so this this was widely used at least at some point but i believe it's still in use but if you would like to elaborate on that <laughs> um yes so um you're correct it is a, a horrible horrible thing um so compound 1080 was approved in the 1980s um to um, by the livestock industry and my general understanding of how this worked was that there would be a collar that had two bladders of this poison on the collar and there would be sort of a sacrificial animal that would be preyed upon and the animal that consumed that poison um, which a death from compound 280 in a canine um, creates four to ten hours of suffering and central nervous system damage and or cardiac arrest after cellular breakdown has no antidote and the collars that they were proposing to use had enough of the poison to kill six healthy adults humans um so it was it was considered to be an unreasonable level of risk to wildlife and humans and was poorly monitored and administered the the, for California purposes, because that was going to be a trial here in Marin County to deal with the depredation issues, um, California passed a ban um, on that, and that led to the termination of what was going to be a trial program. So November of, of 1998, California voters passed a proposition which prohibited two poisons, compound 1080 and sodium cyanide. It also banned the use of steel jawed leg hold traps for commercial and recreational trapping. So oh, the leg hold uh, traps, that's a whole other. So horrible, yeah, so that's horrible. Yeah. when you ask me about a state that's doing pretty well for coyotes, that's why I have to say California because the yeah. the harms and the horrors that humans have, have wrought upon coyotes is so varied. Um, but we have banned a number of them here in California, including um, these terrible poisons. So, um, yeah, the the idea obviously being to poison the predators by having them attack the sheep and bite the bladder of the poison. Um, there have also been um, stakes that um, would explode um, when the coyotes went to get the bait and then poison them with an and and kill them with an explosion, basically. So um, that was the sodium cyanide, I believe. Oh my God, it's like a never-ending. Is it, um, I believe that I read that if a, if a coyote had died from the compound 1080 and then like a vulture came by because they also eat carrion uh, and consumed part of the coyote, they too would ingest that and be poisoned by that as well? Is it, was that correct? Or is that, was that a possibility too? I believe so. As, I mean, yeah. that's my, I'm, I am not, I'm a naturalist, but I'm not a biologist by training, but my understanding is that, that compounds like that, particularly relatively quickly after yeah. that animal has consumed the poison, right. that that animal system contains the poison and anything that eats that animal, this is a, a different type of secondary poisoning, just like the rodenticides we were talking about earlier. Right. Um, different compounds stay in the system for varying lengths of time, but, um, but, you know, I mean, vultures show up almost instantly on a dead animal. So I would expect that they could very easily be poisoned along with a variety of other animals who might scavenge. Do you guys, um, 
Do you guys get any help from like local law enforcement when it comes to uh, the the killing of these animals or anything or any anything that you would obviously see that would be like uh, animal cruelty? Or is it kind of a case to case basis or is it just sort of close an eye and ignore it type thing? I, I think, you know, the issue is really whether something is legal or illegal. And, and uh -huh. you know, even here in California, killing a coyote, you know, if you have a hunting license and you do it in a place where that is permitted, that you're allowed to hunt, is it's not illegal. Um, so I would say that, um, I mean, animal cruelty and mistreatment is different. And that's certainly something uh, Project Coyote partners regularly with Humane Society, both here in Marin County, we partner with our local Marin County Humane Society, but also across the country in a variety of the campaigns, we partner with the Humane Society of the United States. So there are organizations that we work with uh, quite often in terms of law enforcement. Yes, I mean, I, I think they can be responsive if there is an identified animal cruelty or mistreatment or something illegal. Um, the, the bigger challenge and, and the impetus behind so many of our campaigns is that so much remains legal that's really unfortunate and disturbing. And so first we have to ban these practices overall, right. then right. we can have law enforcement involved if somebody continues. Right, now I'm down in Florida. Um, who do you guys partner with down in Florida? Is there any one group? Uh, maybe we should start, maybe we should start a chapter down here. <laughs> um, you know, I I am not off the top of my head familiar with who our contacts are in Florida. We do have program um, associates, basically, in, in most states. There are representatives of Project Coyote working in, in various states. And I can certainly, after we're done, I can see if I can look up our contact in Florida and, and send you information about somebody down there. But off the top of my head, I don't know who it is. That that would be great because I'm still quite active and people ask me all the time, you know, who should I call about this? Who should I call about that? And I, I like to give them information if someone's interested. I don't want them to, I don't want, I try not to just say, oh, you go look it up because then you lose that person, unfortunately. Um, so so that would be great if you could uh, give me some, some information about that. Um, what can people do to help keep a healthy, sustainable coyote population? I mean, what can the average person do? What would what would be like the two or three things that they could do to really help? Uh, I'm hoping people who've listened will realize that coyotes are a benefit to the ecosystem, and they're they're not the the fierce monsters that they are made out to be. Um, and so, hopefully, they will be motivated to kind of help keep a healthy, sustainable population, what would be something that the average person could do? So um, I will answer with some tips for the average person. Before I do that, I do right. want to just highlight one other piece of the importance of coyotes in a healthy ecosystem. So they do provide excellent rodent control. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing though about coyotes is that when they're present in an ecosystem, they tend to um, reduce the population of certain other mesocarnivores, um, raccoons, also, they tend to reduce the population of feral cats in an area, and that actually has a positive impact on um, ground nesting birds and songbirds. So things that you might not think are related concepts actually um, 
you know, every ecosystem is an interconnected series of things. And, and so it actually can help protect your songbirds and ground nesting birds to have, have coyotes there. Um, things that people can do, um, first is, um, to not use, uh, second generation anticoagulant rodenticides, um, and not hire people who use them and find other ways to manage. If you have pest issues, um, owls are a great way to manage rodents. Um, so out here, a lot of people put owl boxes up in their vineyards and ranches, not oh, just, not just residential neighborhoods, but, um, rural properties and, and working commercial, um, vineyards and things like that to avoid using poisons. And, um, and then, you know, coexistence, coyotes are so smart and so adaptable. If they find a food source, they may very well continue going to it. And so we encourage people to not leave pet food or water outside their house, because if a coyote finds those things, it's a source of food and it might keep coming back. And that obviously increases the odds of conflict with the pet. But it also does something called habituate the coyote towards humans and creates a familiarity around being close to humans. And wildlife in general, over many, many thousands of years of interacting with people, has generally viewed humans as dangerous. And we are, right? We are the most dangerous species on this planet. No question. Terrible. We're terrible. Yeah. Yeah, But certain animals, especially if they become accustomed to getting food from, so obviously you should never feed wildlife. That is terrible um, for them and can lead to very aggressive behavior. And often the animal ends up euthanized as a result. So I do always tell people, if you see an animal that you think is in distress or starving, call your local wildlife rehabilitation center or the humane society call a professional who can come assess the animal. And if they need treatment or help, they will help them. But starting to feed a wild animal is usually a death sentence for that animal eventually. So um, putting out pet food and water isn't quite the same as literally feeding the animal, but it's it's in, in that line of, of accom- accompanying human presence and food in that animal's cognition. And so they're thinking about food sources and people as being in proximity, and that's not a good thing. And then keeping your dog on a leash if you're walking it, um, particularly during denning season. So I I mentioned earlier, coyotes are understandably, as most species are, quite protective of their young. And sometimes people unknowingly are going on a hike or a walk with their dog and walking by a coyote den site. And I hear from people all the time, the coyote was following us. It was following us. And, and, you know, it was stalking us. And the truth is that the coyote is not stalking you, um, but it is doing what we call escorting you away from the den site usually. So what it means is you've come sufficiently close to where it has pups that it's doing its best to make sure that you just keep moving and don't stop and don't bother the pups. So it's not going to attack you. It's not going to prey on you or your dog, um, but it is going to make sure that you leave the area because it's protecting its young, which is an instinct that all animals tend to have. And so the reason to keep your dog on a leash is that dogs are animals too, and they have instincts and they don't know necessarily what they're getting themselves into. And if they hear or see or smell something interesting over under some rocks on a hillside and you're out on a walk and the dog takes off up the hill towards that, if that's the den, 
the odds of a conflict with a coyote protecting those pups is quite high. And so we really encourage people to keep their dogs on a leash, particularly when you're walking in areas where coyotes are actively denning. And at least out here in California, many of the parks do have signs that notify people that there are coyote dens in the area. And so dogs definitely need to be on leash. And many parks require dogs to be leashed anyway, um, just for safety of humans and cyclists and other things as well. Um, along the lines of pets, keeping your cats indoors, mm -hmm. or if you're going to let them out, having what they call catios, where you get a little screened in exposure kind of area um, on your deck or patio. So they get fresh air, but they're not able to get out. Um, people probably saw an article from a couple of years ago about um, cats being perfect little killing machines and how incredibly devastating they are to bird populations. They are they so are. good at yeah. killing birds yeah. and lizards and a whole bunch of other things. But in any event, it is better for the ecosystem as a whole to not have your cats be outdoors. But if you have a cat that is accustomed to going outside and you feel that you can't either walk it in a harness on a leash or keep it inside altogether, these catios are a good alternative because you can find them to a screened in area that's outside. So they're outside, but they're not able to access the birds and they're not accessible to coyotes, which generally um, domestic pets are not a preferred food source for coyotes. It's relatively uncommon, but they are prey sized. And in, you know, in the event that you have a coyote in the neighborhood who has hunted successfully a cat in the past, there's always the chance that they do it again, because they are adaptable and their preference is rodents. They are not, they are not interested in pets as a starting point, but every now and then that is something that they may eat. And you don't want to, don't want to have your cat outside as, as an option. Right. Um, when would you say thinning season is? for coyotes? So it probably depends a little bit on where you are and the climate. Um, and even like here in California, it can vary, but I would say generally, so the pups will be born. I'm going to generalize here sort of broadly, but let's say late March or early April probably won't leave the den until maybe sometime in May. And so May and June, you would have active little pups out. Um, and then that would continue. And, and the other thing about coyotes and dens is that they do typically move their young and many species, including bobcats and, and badgers and others do this as well, but they will have multiple dens within their territory and they will move their young within that territory. So they won't like stay in the same den for six months with those pups. They'll move around and, and keep shifting them usually to try and keep them safe and protected. I will say uh, before we end the show that many years ago, I had a husky on a leash and we're out in Idaho and um, the Clearwater Forest, which is a beautiful forest. And we had a coyote, I couldn't actually tell male or female, who perhaps, well, this was like in July. <clears throat> so it was after, I guess it was after denning season. <clears throat> but I guess he or she felt like they were escorting us. I never felt threatened. I never felt my dog threatened. I was thrilled. Uh, I want to let, let everyone know. I was thrilled beyond belief uh, that I had a wild coyote uh, kind of hiking, so to speak, walking with us. Uh, my dog was thrilled. Um, she was very interested in trying to communicate with the coyote. I'm sure the coyote looked at us and thought, oh my God, a dog and a human, uh, please don't say anything. <laughs> you're going to ruin, you're going to ruin, ruin, ruin my ears with your, you know, your fake yipping, but we were thrilled. 
and it was and it was an amazing experience to be out there with wildlife um and so people really should i'm hoping people will see coyotes in a different light and i i think that you've shed some light on the benefits um and the uh not just cruelty but the insanity of so many of these policies um so if people want more information they can log on to projectcoyote.org yeah, and they yeah. can they can find out uh, all kinds of information, and they can look for Kelly Hendricks, um, the rancher, and she's yeah. you said she does Zoom presentations as well. So if somebody wanted information about that and they couldn't uh, go to one of her tours or whatever, they could I guess find some of those uh, Zoom uh, presentations of hers and learn yes. about that. That would be yeah. that. So that would be great. Yeah, so Kelly Hendricks is the Ranching with Wildlife um, Program Coordinator. We do on our website have a variety of resources, including webinars and Zooms that she's done and I've done and podcast recordings that we've done and Camilla's done as well and interviews Camilla's done on various news organizations and things like that. So there are lots of resources online. Uh, and then info at projectcoyote.org is an email address that people can send general inquiries to. The website has a sign up place if you want to join our coyote pack or our email pack. And um, and yeah, people can see different ways to get involved. And, um, you know, we're we're really in some ways the coyote is a lot like our country and our our individuals, which is to say that we are adaptable and resilient and have spread across the country and we should admire so many of their qualities as opposed to disparaging them. And, and it is a gift anytime I'm able to be in the wild with one. It's always a gift. I feel I feel the same way. And that is a that is a perfect way to end the show. So, Sarah, I thank you very much for educating us and shedding light on a on a much needed cause and a, and a much uh, a much vilified species that really, as people have heard, does not deserve that kind of that kind of treatment. We should embrace not just all wildlife, but but coyotes and our predators um, as well. So we will end it here. I hope everyone has enjoyed the show and tune in next time. I cover many different topics you might not hear in the news. So uh, I encourage people to check out some of the other shows on All About Animals podcast radio. They have some terrific shows that I think people will find interesting. And that is a wrap. So thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.